We are live. Welcome, guys. Uh, we're going to do Q&A today, but before we get into that, I just have a few ramblings that I want to get into. Um, actually, I want to talk a little bit about this right here. Uh, this is a book that I received from Dean Odell, who is um, the uh, the guy whose video I critiqued in my recent response to Flat Earth teachings in the Bible. My goal in that video was to show that the flat earth does not teach or the, the flat earth is not taught in the bible the bible when you actually take the verses in context when you look at the scripture in context you'll see that the bible simply doesn't teach that the earth is flat i think i show that it's actually impossible to use the proof text that i brought up in my video to say that the earth is flat because it uses the term ends of the earth and it talks about places like babylon uh, and they knew that this was just a distant place not a physical end of the earth anyway so before we get to your guys' questions, you can start loading them now. You can put your questions in the live chat. Thank you for joining me. I'm Mike Winger. This is the Tuesday live stream, and you know all that stuff. Subscribe and, and click and things and bells and, and likes and things like that. They all help uh, this ministry to continue to reach more people. But this book, the reason why I have it is because Dean Odell was kind enough, and I do think it's a kindness. He was kind enough to send me a copy because, as you can imagine, he's one of the, like, lead teachers at least amongst for a lot of flat earthers others would probably say they don't like him i like other guys but dean odell is one of the major guys and he saw my video and i don't know how many people sent it to him i know from from my own experience that i get lots of people that keep sending me the same videos over and over now i'm not saying to stop because i do want to be aware of video content i should maybe respond to but i would say um I get how you can be overloaded in those things. Anyway, he sent me this video, this this book in response, and he wrote a little inscription on it. And he said, uh, among other things, um, that he was he, this book has a lot more detail in it, and that the the stuff the video I had quoted was from years ago, was several years back. But this this book, in other words, has better content. So like I could look in here and I could find maybe a better defense of his flat Earth perspective. And again, this is not about whether or not the earth is flat. It's about whether or not the Bible teaches a flat earth. That's a different question. At any rate, I looked in the book and I haven't read his whole book and nor am I going to be able to. I just have too many books to read right now. But what I did do is I went to the specific passages that I covered in my uh, in my work. And one of them was this whole Job shape of the earth passage right here. And I'm going to put it on the camera for you guys to see. His book actually has the same image it's teaching the same thing that Job was saying that the earth is like a seal. And, um, you know, when, when, uh, when God created the earth, there was that moment where he pressed it like a seal and it has a ridge around the edge. And that's the ice wall around of Antarctica and, you know, all that sort of thing. Now to the point, this book is not any different than the content I refuted earlier. And it seems a little strange to me that, that I was sent this in response to my video content refuting flat earth because it it is the same thing I already refuted. It's just more of it, but it's the same thing. For instance, it's the bad use of Hebrew. It's the misuse of languages. There's a section here where in order to prove his point, he goes from the, um, let's see. He, he wants to prove his point about Proverbs 8.27. So he says Proverbs 8:27. It has the phrase, and I'm going to put it on the screen for you guys here. Let me let me take you to Proverbs 8:27. I want you to be able to follow along with this. Then we're going to go to your questions today on the Tuesday live stream. It says when he established the heavens, I was there when he drew a circle on the face of the deep. Now, he starts he goes to the amplified Bible for the for how he quotes this verse, and then he goes from there to the complete Jewish Bible. Notice the progress, okay? 
amplified to the complete Jewish Bible, where it says, when he was, uh, when he established the heavens, I was there when he drew the horizons circle on the deep. Okay, the horizon circle. And so now he wants to take the word horizon from the complete Jewish Bible, and he's going to look up the etymology of the word horizon on Wikipedia. I'm not making this up. Okay, this is on Wikipedia, as you can see, wherever it is on this page. <laughs> so I think it's up there. Um, yeah. So according to the etymology of the word horizon, it is much more than just the limits of our vision. Wikipedia defines the term horizon as follows. The word horizon derives from the Greek word kiklos, which means separating circle, the verb horizo to divide, to separate, and that from oros, boundary, landmark. Okay, this is like the etymological search that I see a lot of the Flat Earth group go on. And it's not a good idea when you don't understand linguistics very well to do this sort of etymological hopscotch where you sort of jump from, well, it, this word comes from that word, which comes from that word, which is connected to that word. And then you act like that or that word, several words back, has bearing on the passage you're in and it really doesn't. But here's the problem. He's not going to the original Hebrew of Proverbs. He's going to Wikipedia's description of an English word from the complete Jewish Bible. We're like, we're like miles away from actual textual study here. I don't know. I don't think that the word kiklas is even in Proverbs 9.27. I looked it up in the Septuagint, which is a translation, not the original, right? Because the original is in Hebrew. I looked it up there and I couldn't find it. I couldn't find the word there. I looked it up in a couple, a couple other places, couldn't find it. So... That's one issue. Here's another issue. And this issue is with um, the use of terms. The use of terms. They're going to make a really big deal about how the Bible dictates that it's uh, the earth is a, has a circle or involves a circle in some sense. I think that the circle is just referring to you look around in a circle, you see all that you see, all that you see God made. That That's the idea. Everything you see with a horizon, though, is, doesn't mean the horizon is the edge of the earth. Um, anyway, in, at any rate, they make a big deal about the shape and the, the descriptive terms. They say circles aren't balls. Circles aren't balls. But look at what the flat earth people do with the idea of a circle. Okay, here he's like, look, the word circle is describing. By the way, it's not describing the planet. The word circle is just describing what we see, not the planet. But they go, look, it's not a ball. It's a circle. But they put the word circle over a disc. That is not a circle. That is a disc. It involves a circle, but it's not a circle. And if you'll pay close attention, the flat earth movement does not believe the earth is a circle. They believe the earth has circularity. They don't think it's a circle because there's a lot more to it than that. Every diagram you ever see, there's more to it than that. And my point here is that um, this is bad logic and bad reasoning and bad Bible study all rolled up into one. That's promoting the idea that the Bible teaches a flat earth. Let me give you one last example. And this is all from just a, a, a pages like, I don't know, 215 through 220, I guess, 230, 221 on his, 222 <laughs> on his, uh, in his book. But here's probably one of the worst examples and I'll offer it right here. This has to do with what the word earth means, what the word earth means. And let me just find the page real quick. Okay. He goes through a long discussion on pages 214 and 215 of what the word earth means. And he's trying to promote, I, I covered this in my previous video on the flat earth. Maybe I'll put it in the video description after this Q and A is over. What he, what he does is he says, Hey, um, you know, it says that, uh, that a, an army uh, marched upon the plane of the earth and therefore the earth is a flat plane. And it's, it's everything about it is, is wrong, but he wants to say that earth means the whole planet. So he says right here. Eretz, the word earth in Hebrew, which is not what's in Revelation there anyways, 
But he says right here, and I'll see if I can just read it to you guys right now. And Eretz, according to Brown Driver Briggs definition, means the whole earth as opposed to part, which is how it was used in Genesis 1 at the creation of the entire earth. The truth of Genesis 1 is it uses the word earth in multiple ways in the same chapter, Genesis 1. You can read it on your own and look at the way it uses the word earth multiple ways. Uh, Genesis 2, same thing, and throughout the text of scripture. But what he said there was Brown Driver Briggs, their entry on the word earth, it has one short definition, the whole earth as opposed to part. This, friends, is Brown Driver Briggs and its definition of Eretz, earth. Yeah, this is one article for one word, one Hebrew, one core Hebrew word, Eretz, earth. And this is how long it is. And it, it's, it's, it's on your whole page. It kind of overlaps past one whole page. I have to scroll up and down to give you the whole thing. And those highlights, all those highlights I've provided for you here, those are different definitions, different usages of the word earth. Dean Odell obviously looked it up, obviously gave people a very short, selective example of what uh, Brown Driver Briggs says in order to give them a wrong impression about what the Bible teaches about the earth. This is inexcusable. Let me give you some of these examples, and I've highlighted them here. Multiple possible definitions. One of them is, 1A, earth, the whole earth, as opposed to a part. B, earth, as opposed to the heaven or sky. Another definition, C, this is 1C, earth, the inhabitants of the earth. It's actually used to talk about human beings that has nothing to do with physical earth, planet type stuff at all. It can also mean a different definition, or Eretz can mean land, um, referring specifically to a country or territory, or it could mean be talking about land as in a district or region. It could be talking about a tribal territory, a piece of ground. Specifically, it could refer to the land of Canaan or of Israel because that's their focus when they're thinking. They would use the word earth and just talk about Israel. It could refer to the inhabitants of the land, so a local group of people. It could refer to use uh, the, the word sheol, which is the word grave, like I go into the grave or the earth, it would say, but it's referring to the grave. It's not talking about something beyond that. It could talk about the ground or the surface of the ground. And if you were to say which definition does Revelation refer to and it talks about an army walking on the plain of the earth, it's talking about the surface of the ground. That's what it's talking about. Um, and, uh, oh, there we go. It could refer to soil as productive, like you planted ground, you plant, you know, uh, uh, vegetables in the earth in that sense it could be in a, in phrases um, people of the land or of non-israelites in measures of distance it could be a measurement of distance between one space and another the distance of the country um, the country of the plain the level or plain country and it goes on i could i could continue reading stuff it's a little bit more there for you here's the point a lot of people and i don't mean this to be rude to dean odal look okay i'm sorry your book is not giving reliable information to people. It's not accurate. It's not true. And people think that you're the guru who's giving them great wisdom and insight and understanding and unveiling their eyes of this incredible deception. But they don't know Hebrew. And they've never, they don't even know what Brown Driver Briggs is. They don't know how to go look it up. And so they take your definitions and they run with it. And no bueno. So there's my little rambling for you. <laughs> I decided to start the Q&A with some ramblings. And, um, and now I'm going to go to your guys' questions. That, that's, my, that's my thought for you guys on the whole, the whole Flat Earth thing. I don't plan on doing a lot more content on that. But I thought it was worth bringing up because here I am being, being sent this book by a gentleman who's in, he's intelligent. I don't doubt that one bit. 
I wouldn't be surprised if he was smarter than me. That's not the issue. It, his heart, I'm not doubting his heart, but his facts, those I doubt significantly. All right. Let's do your your guys' questions. Here we are. Um, Anne Merritt Ellerston has a question from Norway. And uh, she says, uh, thank you so much for your teaching. What does the Bible say about uh, communion at home? Can we do it? And if so, how? What do we need to be aware of? You know, uh, the text of scripture doesn't really give us a lot of clear instructions on the process of communion as far as like how it is to be administered in like say the catholic teaching there's like really very very strict rules about how it is to be done in order for it to become um you know what they think that it is and in the actual text of scripture though when you limit yourself to the bible there really isn't like a lot of details about how to communion is to be um to be done i i think it's, it's meant to be clearly meant to be a community thing but if you can't gather together with your community and you want to honor the Lord, I think we have a variety of ways to do this. So let me just throw out things that, in my opinion, I think are acceptable. You gather your family together and you guys you guys get some bread, whatever bread you have available. You get some juice or wine, whatever you have available. And you say a, a prayer of thankfulness to God. Maybe you worship, sing a song. Maybe you read a psalm and you pray in thankfulness to God. You could have some sort of spiritual spiritually edifying moment there and you give honor unto Christ for his his body offered for you and his blood and you partake together and you could add prayer of individuals or, or time of silence and seeking the Lord or you could have a song of rejoicing at the end or solemnness or whatever it is that you guys want to do there I don't think there's like these hard and fast rules but I do think you can do this as a family and what I would look for is probably whoever's the spiritual head of the home to probably guide in that moment there's other ways to do it, though. You can actually get together on Zoom with a group of Christians. You could get your pastor with you, too. Say, hey, pastor, we want to have a time of communion. Can we get, can we give, although I heard Zoom might be leaking people's info. Is that true? I don't know. So don't blame me. But, but you can get together on some kind of, you know, network software. And you guys can actually have communion as a church, even though you're all home. And I think that that's a wonderful thing. My church is actually doing that this Wednesday. We're going to be having a, commun a communion service remotely. And so they've, you know, recording the thing and I don't know if they're live streaming it or they're recording the, the, the pastoral leading of it. I don't know all the details there, but it'll play live and we'll be partaking like that. I think that's a, a wonderful way to do it as well. So, yeah, I think given the flexibility of scripture, we can acknowledge a certain flexibility in our own practice of those things. Echo Waffle says, what does Paul mean when he says, unless you believed in vain in 1 Corinthians 15 too? Also, thank you for your videos. They've been a huge blessing in my life. Um, that is, um, that doesn't get old to hear that Echo Waffle. I, I don't, I don't want to let things like that uh, go to a weird place in my head or heart, but it's really encouraging and it means the world to me to know uh, that's the case. Um, so let me, let's go to that passage, which I, I fear I may not be able to give you as good of an answer as it deserves but we will look at it together so first corinthians 15 2 um okay now i would remind you brothers of the gospel i preached to you which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word i preached to you unless you believed in vain ah there you go putting it up for you guys if you hold fast, unless you believed in vain. So, it, I mean, what seems clear, we can say this clearly, is that this idea of believing in vain is connected to the idea of if they don't hold fast, right? If they don't hold fast to the word. 
So if they don't continue to, to maintain their pro proclamation and trust and confidence and resting in the gospel of Christ, then they have not believed in vain. But if they reject that, if they turn from that, then they, it seems he's saying that they've believed in vain. Now, the question then we have, I think, is, okay, what exactly is believed in vain? Um, believed in vain? Let me. And here's something I do in my studying. I, I, I go, well, what kind of options? What possible ways could it be interpreted here? One possibility would be believed in vain could be, uh, they they believed, but but eventually they stopped believing. So they were genuine believers who then gave up and apostatized, and they lost their salvation. They believed therefore in vain. But I think there's maybe maybe a better option for this verse, and that would be, uh, see when you when you do something in vain, you do fill in the blank in vain. It's like you do it in an empty fashion. You do it with no effect. So here he's talking about they believed past tense. And when they believed in the past, that may have been a vain belief, an empty belief, a belief that was merely intellectual and not the actual life being yielded to God, like that you get coming, actually coming to God spiritually. Now, if that's the case, what he seems, if that's, if my understanding here is correct, and I do lean this way, then that means that for people who hear the gospel seem to receive it, but then, in, at least in the Corinthians case, they then fall away. They don't hold fast to the word. That means that perhaps when they originally proclaimed faith, it was vain. It was empty. It was never actually genuine in the beginning. So that, there's, you know, my understanding of that um, for what it's worth. And I hope that you find that fruitful and helpful for you and something to think about. All right. Uh, Philagape says... Which is, his name means love, love, right? <laughs> because phileo and agape are two different types of love or compassion uh, or kindness, depending on the context, right? Okay, so you say Ephesians 2.8 does not teach faith as a gift of God. Let me, let me get us there. This is kind of a complicated issue, Ephesians 2 verse 8. And it, and it has to do with uh, the discussion, usually when it comes up for me, it's between Calvinism and non-Calvinism, or those who are like myself who are not Calvinists. So you say Ephesians 2.8 does not teach faith is a gift of God. Does it originate with us then? So how does that square with 1 Corinthians 2.14? Natural man cannot receive the things of the Spirit of God. All right. Um, so... The uh, first, I, there's two different issues going on here. So for, for, in one sense, um, for by grace, you've been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. This is the gift of God. Now here's the question. Is the this referring to faith, referring to grace, or referring to being saved? Well, in the Greek, there's ways of tying words together with gender. And you can, you know, you have, you have masculine, feminine, and neuter. You have these different genders you can put on words. And that helps you tie the meaning. So if we have the same gender between the word in Greek, between this and, say, faith, then we know that the this is the faith. And if the faith is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, then Ephesians 2.8 is saying that faith itself comes from God and you don't do anything. So, like, you either have faith because God gives it to you, end of story, full stop, or you don't have faith because God didn't give you faith. And I don't think that that's what this teaches. And part of the reason is the gender, right? So the word this is, if I remember correctly, is it's neuter, it, it's genderless. And uh, faith here is is in the feminine form. And it, now this doesn't mean, this doesn't give us a good answer though, right away, because this 
Does it refer to being saved? Does it refer to grace? Well, these are also not neuter. So there isn't like a connection between this and any of those three things. So how do we take this passage? Well, we look at Ephesians 2 as a whole. It's talking about how you are saved, how you are saved. That's the main thrust of the passage. You are, and you're saved by grace, right? You're saved through faith. That's what this is talking about. The this is an inclusive whole. I'm, I'm saved inclusively by grace through faith. That's the gift of God. The gift of God is that I can be saved by grace through faith. That doesn't mean that the faith is a gift, but the through faith, the ability to be saved through faith, that is a gift of God. I think that that's pretty significant. Now, the, and I don't think that it fits the typical Calvinist usage that I generally hear. Not all Calvinists use it, but the one that I usually hear. Now, you have another question follow up, which makes this more complicated, which is 1 Corinthians 2.14. It says, the natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God. For they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he but he but is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Um, they're folly to him; they don't understand him. Uh, let's back up a little bit because we need some more context. Where does he talk about this? Um, I'm just going to read, starting at the beginning of chapter two. And I, when I came to you, brothers, this is Paul talking to the Corinthians. He's talking about his previous visit to them. I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. What does this mean? Among the mature, we do impart wisdom. I think he's saying that we go beyond the basic gospel and we go into the more complicated truths of Christianity. Okay, I'm just going to, I'm not going to try and do a whole Bible study in this passage, but that's my view. Among the mature, we impart wisdom. I think he's saying we just came with the basic gospel, not some, not some like huge, like give you all the theology of Christianity and all the deep things of God. We just came with the gospel message, but among the mature, we give you more wisdom. This, this conversation and this like language is reflected in the book of Hebrews too, where he's like, look, you're babes, you need to be fed the milk, but you know, we want to give you these deeper things, these deeper truths, but you're not ready for them. I think he's talking about mature Christians who can go deeper into theology, which is something we like to do on this channel. So among the mature, we do not impart. We do impart wisdom, although it's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, who no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also, no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. And we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. The spiritual person judges all things, but he himself, but is himself to be judged by no one. Okay, putting it together, what do I think 1 Corinthians is talking about? The reason why I read so much of it was because 
when you ask the question about Ephesians and then you quote out of context, not like you were trying to do this, but when you quote it out of context, 1 Corinthians 2.14, you're already thinking about um, is do we do we do we choose to believe or not choose to believe? Is faith purely an act of God or or is is faith something God enables but man has to make a choice in, which would be my view, right? God does enable faith, but we must make a decision to choose it. We could reject that. And when you do that, you, you kind of lose the context of 1 Corinthians. So 1 Corinthians saying, hey, first I came just bringing the gospel. But for those who want to go in the deeper things of God, we do it. But just to the mature. Why? Because the natural man, the man who's unregenerate, the man whose heart is rebelling against God, they don't understand these more mature things, the more deep truths, the intricate things. You might ask, what is an example of these intricate things, this sort of things that the natural man doesn't get? Um, well, Hebrews gives us an example, I think. The book of Hebrews, after saying, I want to go on into, these, into the meat into the deeper stuff, it then gives you one thing that he goes on into, and he goes on to Mel Melchizedek and how Melchizedek is a type of Christ. If you read Hebrews in context, you'll see the flow of thought is, I want to go deeper, I want to take you to the meat, but there's all these issues you got, and then shortly thereafter he says, but here's the meat, right? And he gives you Hebrews uh, 7, I believe it is, where he talks about Melchizedek and how Melchizedek is a type of Christ. So maybe the deeper mysterious things are these sort of like typological understandings of Jesus in the Old Testament. That could be one example of them, meaning that it has little to do with, um, with the question of whether or not we choose faith. All right, we'll see. We'll see what, what Calvinist YouTube channel takes that clip and, and does a response video today. Uh, not that I would mind. Uh, it's good to have these discussions openly as brothers and sisters in Christ. All right, theological theory has a question. To what extent is Satan involved in the sins of humans? Some believe that Satan has little to do with the current sins of man, but some believe he is at the heart of every temptation. Oh, that's a hard question for me to answer. Um, let me let me make it more complicated for you first. <laughs> Sometimes that helps. Um, here's the question I want to ask before trying to answer your question. Is when we say Satan's involved, what do we mean by that? Because we could mean that Satan is directly causally involved, like he's causing that to happen. So in the case of Judas, it says Satan put it into Judas's heart to betray Jesus. That's what the scripture tells us. So Satan was very causally directly involved with Judas. So that's, that's interesting. Um, but there are other types of causal involvement. So Satan, he's the, he's, he's the God of this age and people aren't consciously aware they're, I don't think they're all like Judas where he's putting things in their heart like that directly, but rather they're just being influenced by Satan and by his general agendas and his influence on mankind. Now, let's say you're involved, you're steeped in a culture as a Christian. And because your culture has satanic influence in a broad sense of the word, use, using um, those who are really caught up under Satan's control, using um, demonic influences working here and there, and 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 also just sort of the fiery darts of the wicked one, how broadly you interpret that. And so you're involved in a culture where, say, pornography, for instance, is easily readily available and, and is making billions of dollars worldwide because it's a huge industry now. And you're in this culture where, where it's available on your phone and it's available on your computer and it's available when you're in your quiet time and you're alone and no one's around you and it's easily accessible. And the reason why it's accessible, part of that has to do with Satan's general influence in the world his demonic influence in the world, but not his direct influence on you personally. So we could say Satan's involved in that, but yet I wouldn't give him any blame for the decision of a believer to step into those things. 
So when we say how much is Satan involved, I think in a broad, like sort of secondary tertiary sense, his kingdom is influencing this world because this world is his kingdom and that influences sin in people's lives. That's probably pretty pervasive, but his direct influence in individuals would probably be a lot less in my opinion. And it could be not him, but a demon influencing somebody in a particular scenario. But I do think this, that um, 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation is overtaking you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you're able. But with a temptation will provide a way of escape that you may be able to bear it. This means that even if Satan came and tempted you, God will provide you at least with enough ability to say no. So I can't actually blame my sin on anybody. (laughs) I have total full personal responsibility because even in an environment where I'm being oppressed or attacked, even demonically, I still have a choice to make to obey God or not. Uh, Dustin Busa has a question. I've heard a lot of people use uh, 2 Thessalonians 2.7 as a rapture verse. Would you have any insight on who the he is in this verse? Do you think it pertains to the rapture at all? Um, Let's just look at that verse together, y'all. 2 Thessalonians 2.7. I'll put it up on the screen for you. It says, For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is taken out of the way. So the big debate on this passage is, who is he? Who's the he? Uh, Because there is this sort of, he is taken out of the way. I'll I'll bet that's the harpazo uh, in the Greek. Let me check. I'll, I'll just check for you guys. No, it's not. Let's see. It's Mesu and uh Yeah, that's interesting. It's not it's not that harpazo word. Anyway, that harpazo word does show up in, in the book of Revelation. I was just curious if it happened to be here in Second Thessalonians. Um so the uh and that's the word by the way, harpazo is where we get the Latin rapturus, which is where we get the, the term rapture. So it's connected to that word. Um at any rate, this says, for this is the mystery of lawlessness, or the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And this lawlessness, this, this incredible flood of lawlessness, ungodliness that's going to be on the, in the world during the very, very last times, it's already begun, but there's somebody restraining it, keeping it from being worse than it is. And that person, it's a person, it's not an it, it, it's he, that person, when he is taken out of the way, whoom, then, verse 8, then the lawless one will, re, will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. And the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. And so then God sends him a delusion, all this stuff. This is all, in my mind, still future, in time stuff that's going to happen in the world. Okay, so here's how it, I'm bringing everybody up to the page, uh, up to the same page here. Here's how it weighs in on the rapture discussion. I think I think just about anybody who has a future view of Jesus's coming, which should be should be everybody, <laughs> um, they think that we're going to have something like a rapture. They just debate when it's going to happen. Is it when Jesus shows up that we're caught up to be with him, or is it mid-trib or pre-trib or something like that? I know it's more complicated than that, but there's my summary for you. Here's the question: Is is the he who restrains being taken out of the way? Is that the rapture event? And if so, then who's he? Because if he is the church, well, the church is always called a she in scripture. 
and we're the bride of Christ. And so it would seem very strange, unnatural to call the church he. So the interpretation that's offered by um, some who would use this to support the rapture is he is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is active in the church, active in the life of the church. And we're preserving the world. We're keeping sin from, from doing its thing. We're slowing down the progress towards the Antichrist. But, when, but you know, pre-trib rapture, when we get pulled out, or even mid-trib, I guess you could try to work this first for mid-trib rapture. When we get pulled out, that's when, like, boom, uh, Satan just goes into, into this, his next degree of work in those end times. I I, I'm not sure what he represents here. Uh, that's one interpretation. I think it's kind of challenging. And I think this is the case for future prophecy in general. I think prophecy oftentimes is one of those things where after it happens, you go, of course it meant that, right? But, but before it happens, you're sort of scratching your head trying to put it all together. I find prophecy, unfulfilled prophecy, to be one of the most difficult pass, uh, topics to, uh, to really figure out. So there's just a couple thoughts. Uh, Matt Smith has a question. Mike, where or what do you believe mystery Babylon? I've heard things like Rome or Vatican, America, Jerusalem, or the false church system. Have you done a video on this or a video idea? I'm not really confident about mystery Babylon. Um, so I'll, I'll tell you what I do think about it. And I, I guess I, for the sake of getting the more questions today, I won't give like a huge recap on mystery Babylon. But who is this like mystery Babylon thing that shows up in the book of Revelation? Well, the Tower of Babel in the Old Testament was humankind coming together in rebellion against God. That was destroyed. Uh, Babylon was later this wicked, evil, sinful center of, for mankind. Then even later, it may be that Babylon is referenced. Peter was either in Babylon or he was in Rome writing about Babylon in, in, his, in his letters. And he refers to it as Babylon, which it might be. If he was in Rome, I'm not saying he was, um, if he was in Rome, then that refers, that means that the Babylon is sort of, here's sort of like the hub of ungodliness in our culture today. That would be the idea. All that to, to say, I think that mystery Babylon doesn't have to refer to Babylon, the physical location on earth. I think it can refer to simply the hub of ungodliness and wickedness in our culture. Um, so in that sense, it could be a, a very broad interpretation in the future. So I probably didn't help you very much at all. Moving on. <laughs> Jamal Martin. I want to be able to help further God, uh, furthering God's kingdom with apologetics. What are some practical things I can do besides just reading a bunch of books? Uh, what is what I'm doing, which is what I'm doing currently? Jamal, here's a thought. I, I thought if I have more time on my hands and I could go back, go back in time like Michael J. Fox. I think what I would do is I would get out on the street and I would try to figure out how to integrate apologetics more and more into normal conversations with people. I would learn what apologetic arguments I could communicate in a quick, short period of time with a stranger. I would try to learn how they respond, what questions they bring up, and how I could learn how to say it better. And I would do it through just like real life interactions. Now you could do this on a college campus with during in the free speech area. You could do this in some areas, some cultures, some cultures and areas will allow you to do this and people are open to it. I live in Southern California where people really are very resistant to those kinds of things. There's a lot of suspicion, even around, even about your neighbors around here. There's a lot of suspicion in Long Beach where I live and it becomes difficult to start conversations with people you don't know. Um, they're very suspicious, not just, uh, and then when they find out you're a Christian, <laughs> oh no, they're worried, you know, it's one of those conversations. 
But I think that that's one of the things I would do is get out there and just get more and more experience talking to normal people about these things. Because when we study apologetics, we can learn how to not talk to normal people anymore. And that can be potentially dangerous. The other thing I would recommend is this. Ask your, your church if you could start a, um, when the time comes, when we're back in our buildings and all that. If you could start a, a regular weekly thing where you just talk about apologetics and you take the stuff you're learning and you share it with others and it may only be two people in your church that show up but you can start to create an awareness and hunger in your church for apologetics which i think is hugely valuable my own sunday night service i put online here uh, that i teach weekly at my church once we're back in the building we get like 20 people that come out to that thing um and that's that's when like a more than a third of them are just guests who are out of, from out of town. They're like, hey, we wanted to visit Mike Winger's study. And they look around. It's small. Who cares if it's small, man? Uh, I recommend I, re- I recommend doing that. You'll, in a generation, not now, but in a generation, if the Lord tarries, you will have a church that has an awareness of apologetics and cares about it. And you won't be the only guy there who cares about it. Speaking of which, in apologetic stuff, we're, we often feel isolated and alone. Because you're the only one you know that cares about these things. Uh, for this, I recommend getting involved in like a, f- a Facebook group or like so- some kind of an online group where there's other apologists that care. But don't live in that world because you just, you, you, you learn how to not talk to normal people anymore. And then it, your apologetics loses its outreach ability. All right. Um, we're going to need some more questions pretty soon here. But Shikson uh, Bai says, what would you say to an atheist? who agrees with Christian values, but can't get around the idea of the existence of a higher being and how can they get converted? Well, I'm sorry, Shikson, but I, I, I would just ask him a bunch of questions. Um, they can't get around the idea of the existence of a higher being. I don't, I, I just would need a lot more information. And so do you. So do you. If they say, I just can't get around that idea. Well, then ask him, what do you mean? What is it about the idea you can't get around uh, and start to try to, categorize and systematize their thinking so that you can you can approach them I, I don't think there's anything irrational about it or unreasonable about it um, yeah <laughs> yeah yeah um, I, what you want to do is you want to get them to the point where they can't get around the idea that all this exists without a higher being that's that's what that's what you want to get them to yeah where they just can't handle it um, so yeah, this is this is for those who are just joining us. Uh, my name is Mike Winger. I'm a pastor in Southern California, and I do YouTube videos uh, presenting the truth of Christianity, defending the truth of Christianity, and helping people learn how to think biblically about everything. If if you like this, it does help uh, me and hopefully you. If you like the videos, if you subscribe, if you click that bell icon, especially right now, YouTube's notifications are kind of wacky, weird. So you really need to have. Um, uh-oh, you really need to have something something clicked on there and hope that it actually works. So AJ says that some weird thing happened and he lost 32 of your guys' questions. So I'm not I'm not saying, I just want to say, like, blame AJ. That's all I'm saying is blame AJ. Everyone blame AJ. If you could just put shame on you, AJ, in the, in the live chat, that's, I'm kidding. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, so we'll get to your guys' your guys' other questions. I'll do is I'll read one of them right off the screen here. Um, I can pop the live chat out and I can bring it right over for me. This is from FB Mina Mahal, who says, uh, "What do I say to someone who says that they can't believe that the Bible is the Word of God because it's been tampered with uh, by many people?" This is a great question, uh, FB, because this is like one of those things where it's like an urban myth. 
Um, I mean, it really, I would elevate it to that status. Urban myth that the Bible has been tampered with by too many people. All you have to do is help the person know how we got our Bible in the first place. So I would, I would first try to get them to level up their care about this issue. And maybe and the, the reason why is because this is what happens. Let me explain to you about how our manuscript tradition confirms that we do have a reliable account of the recording of scripture. Bart Ehrman, the chief skeptic, said this about the Bible and over here and, da, 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 and even atheists agree. And when you say all these things, sometimes people just, their eyes just glaze over and they're just like, I don't care. So they, this, the person you're talking about may not even care, right? This may just be an excuse and not an actual reason. First, find out if it's a reason. I like to find out if it's a reason by saying things like the following. Let's suppose if I could prove to you the Bible had not been changed over time, would you then become a Christian? That question, I think, reveals a lot. And if they say no, then you say, why not? And if they say, well, because I, I think that um, uh, I just because it hasn't been changed doesn't mean it's inspired, doesn't mean God inspired it. Okay, and you say, well, let's suppose I could show you that God inspired the Bible. Would you then become a Christian? And if they answer yes, then that's the one you go after. And if they say no, you find out, get all their reasons out on the deck. Find out what the real reasons are, separate the reasons from the excuses, and then target the reasons in those conversations. That would be my recommendation. Um, and let me see. I'll find another one of your guys' questions here. From Don't Be a Fishwife, it says, could you please do a study on First John? First John seems like we have to be perfect, literally. As a former JW, I already struggle when it comes to works, salvation, and getting away from that thinking. I get you. Um, and... Um, I don't know when I might do a study on First John, but let me try to offer you something that may help a little bit. Don't be a fishwife. And um, and it's going to be in the context of First John. Now, can we agree with one thing, right? We, When an author seems to be contradicting himself in one verse in a short little book, like First John, and it's like a verse here that seems to totally contradict a verse here, that doesn't mean he's contradicting himself. They're smarter than that. It means you've misunderstood them. That's the real message, right? And I think that's the key in First John. I think the key is to recognize that you've misunderstood First John when you think you have to be sinlessly perfect in order to be saved. In which, in which case, by the way, none of us are saved in the live chat. None of us are saved because none of us are sinlessly perfect. But in First John 2, 1, he says, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. What does that mean? That means that you might sin. Like Christians need the text of scripture to help encourage us because we're prone to sin even as Christians. So he's writing this to you that you may not sin. And then he says, but if anyone does sin, and notice what First John doesn't say. It doesn't say, if anyone does sin, he's not really saved. It doesn't say that. It says, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And how is that okay? Well, because he's the propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So right there, I don't want you to sin. I'm writing these things to encourage you not to sin. But if you sin, we have an advocate. We have Jesus. He's the righteous one. He stands on our behalf and he intercedes for us because what? He died on the cross for us. My sin was already paid for by Jesus. And now he stands in my place advocating for me at all times. At all times. This blows my mind. At all times. So the sin I committed yesterday was already dealt with by the cross, but is currently being resolved by the presence of Christ advocating for me in, uh, in, at the right hand of the Father. Yes, and amen to that. Now, later on, when you, reach, when you read something um, that says, whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Well, 
I mean, if you sin, you're not keeping his commandments, right? Like that's what that means. If I sin, I'm not keeping his commandments. But first John chapter two, verse one just said, if I sin, I have an advocate. Well, because first John is not saying if you ever sin, it is talking, I think very, and this can be scary about a rebellious life against God. I claim the name of Christ. I say I'm a Christian. I claim to believe, but I'm living as a non-Christian. And I think for that person, they may in fact be lying because they're living in constant continual rebellion against God and his commandments and the things that he says. That person's a liar and the truth is not in him. Um, and then there's other commands like that where, you know, if anyone says you know him and you sin, and I think it all has to be taken in context of First John chapter 2, verse 2. And when you realize that, you're saying, oh, he's not saying any act of sin or some struggles with sin or some season of real failure in a Christian's life. He's talking about that person who is on this sort of um, pretend Christianity where they live a life of sin and rebellion against God, ultimately. That's my understanding of First John. I know there's a lot more to ask about it, but I hope that it, you find some assistance in that for yourself as well. And we'll see if we get some more questions at this point. Um, all right. If you do have some, AJ, I'll take them, but I realize that some glitch caused him to lose his questions. It's, don't blame AJ, guys. AJ has been helping you out for, what, two years now, AJ? For free, by the way, because I don't pay him. I'm not paying him. You must you must work and receive nothing. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. Uh, Deshaun Jeffries has a question. Uh, what does First John five sixteen mean? What are some responses to future judgment verses? And he lists several verses here. Uh, and future temple sacrifice used to get believers to observe Torah. Oh, that's probably a lot for me to do on a, the Q and A. Let me just take the first question you asked. What does First John five sixteen mean? Oh, man, this is a challenging one. Uh, I don't know if I'll be able to answer it sufficiently. So let me just talk to you about it for a minute. First John 5.16 says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Uh, what is he talking about? That is a challenge, uh, and I'm not sure that I know the right answer here, um, in particular on First John. I, I've, I like some of you find First John to be a challenging book to read and to understand properly. I do try, but I do find it challenging. I really do. I think this discussion of First John five sixteen seventeen it really revolves around what we mean by sin unto death. Once you define sin unto death, everything else makes sense. So sin unto death could be could be committing a sin that is actually physically killing a person. It could just be talking about physical death. So let's say I'm committing a sin and I'm literally going to die because of my sin. I'm persisting in my rebellion against God and it's causing me physical danger and eventual death. And it's like, hey, if that person's doing that, if they're sinning unto death, they're, they're, they're unrepentant, they're continuing to, uh, to move in that direction, let them, let them deal with it before them and God. That could be a sin unto death. Others would think the sin unto death would be spiritual death. So the sin here would be rebelling against the very gospel of Christ. Uh, apostasy. They've turned from the very gospel itself. In which case, then the person, we're being told not to pray for them because it's like, there is no cure outside of Jesus. Like you've, you're, you're sending the sin unto death. The rebellion against the Holy Spirit, against the work of the gospel itself. There's a couple different interpretations for it. I'm not really sure of the right way to interpret that. Um, sadly, I'm sorry. 
All right, I'm going <clears> to <throat> move forward. I got some more questions for you. Um, there's a question about divorce here from Michelle Delves. And I get these questions all the time, and I rarely answer them uh, because of my own insufficiency in, on the topic. But I want to announce something. I'm right now in the middle of a thoughtful, careful, and thorough study of the topic of divorce, remarriage, and the Bible. And I'm preparing for my next study in the Mark series, which may or may not be ready this Sunday. I might do something else this week. Uh, I'm not sure. I, I have a lot of work ahead of me to do this. I want to bring a very careful and thoughtful teaching on divorce, and I'll put it up on my YouTube channel as soon as it's ready. It should be within a week, within a week or two, and and this is going to be um, uh, hopefully as many good and right and solid and biblical answers as I can provide on this very important, very hard, and very life changing topic for many people. So I've I've caused you guys to wait for me to chime in on this. I mean, you don't need me. I'm not the only teacher out there. I don't have to have answers for everything, but but I. I I've made you guys wait a long time for my response on this and my thoughts on this and pray for me that I'd have wisdom as I prepare and be able to bring good answers. And then I, at that time, I will give you all I got. Michelle Del Delves should be very soon. Debbie D has a question. Um, I have a friend who believes that you must be baptized to go to heaven. If you don't get baptized, will, will you, uh, will you not go to heaven or you will not go to heaven? I, how do I respond? Help. Uh, Debbie D, I have a four hour, <laughs> video that's a debate on this very topic but if you just just type mike winger and then baptism in the search engine on youtube and you'll see i have a few videos on this topic and i i recommend those videos uh, you could now the nice thing about a video is you can send that to your friend and they can't interrupt it and they and, and change the topic right they have to like listen to the different verses that we're talking about one of them is a four-hour debate and a couple others are different videos related to this issue so i would say please check those out just type Mike Winger baptism and you can, and you can see those. Um, yeah, no, we, we're not. And the, and the text, when you look at them carefully, here's a little preview, like first Peter tells us, um, that we're saved by baptism right there. Baptism saves. Yes. But the very next phrase in the verse is not the removal of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God. Okay. So it's not the removal of So we're saved by baptism, but baptism is more than just the physical act. Right. And he specifically says the part that saves us isn't the physical removal of the filth from the flesh. It's not that water act. It's the conscience responding to God. Um, we have Cornelius and his company in Acts chapter 10. They get saved, filled with the Holy Spirit, and then get baptized afterwards. So obviously baptism isn't required. Although it's very, very important and it's ext extremely valuable. And every Christian should be baptized. That's absolutely true. Joseph Benz Jr. says, uh, Hey, Pastor Mike, I'm kind of in a tough spot. I go to an unsteady church and have found a new one that I love. How should I leave lovingly knowing that I may cause hurt? Whew, Joseph, that's tough, man. Um, I, uh, I think that you need to take the wisdom I'm going to try and give you here and you need to evaluate for yourself whether it applies to your situation. I think it's healthy for people who you have long relationships with in your old church to just tell them, Hey, I love you guys. Um, I just, I think that I'm being fed more at this other fellowship and I'm going to be attending there so that I can be growing. And I just want you to know it's not about you. I love you. And, and you can have those conversations with a few people and you might even talk to the leadership. And if there's issues with your current church, this is a chance for you to not get them off your chest, like you're venting, but there's a chance for you to tell the leadership because sometimes that helps when, as a pastor in a church, sometimes it helps when someone says, I'm leaving and this is the real reason why. Because what often happens is when they do talk to their former pastors about why they left, they're not honest about it because they're just too intimidated and they don't want to hurt their feelings. And I think that might be a good time to be really honest with them if there are 
problems that they should that they should know about uh, or to build to keep the bridge from burning by telling them that you love them and care about them and you're just you're just fed more over here and that's it and and you feel bad and you don't want to spread any hurt so i think just kind of bearing your heart out to them might be the smart thing to do god give you wisdom joseph um catherine bears says or bars says uh, hi mike i'm younger in the faith sometimes i feel intimidated by the catholic claim to authority and the catholic and the claim that non-catholics are damned can you give me tips or verses to overcome this thanks well i think actually the best response to to this um catherine and i remember you catherine by the way i remember a lot of your guys names when we when you're here regularly like this I think one of the best responses is to actually look at the text themselves. Oh, and I've, I never did remove the, the logos here. Uh, <laughs> to look at the, the Bible verses themselves that that are that the, the Catholic Church uses to say that they have authority, because those verses are such a. It's so obvious that they're they're misapplying the texts of Scripture. Um, I'll give you an example. Matthew 16, 18 is huge. This is hugely important. The Catholic Church is like, this proves that the Pope is is real and has the authority that we say he has. Because Jesus says in Matthew um, 16, 18, and I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in, he- in heaven. Now, even if this verse, because here's the things we're getting from this, right? Jesus is like, there's some kind of authority I'm giving and I'm, I'm giving it to Peter. Okay. Now in the church fathers, there's a debate and they're actually split on this. Many of them think all the apostles have it. Many of them think it belongs to the whole church as a whole. Some of them, and it is a minority, they think that it belongs to Peter. Some of them have, they say it belongs to Peter in one passage and later on in life, they were like, nah, it's for the whole church. So there's no, there's never been consensus in the church fathers on what Matthew 16, 18 means, but the Catholic church says this, this is proof of the papacy, but where here does it say anything about a successor of Peter or that the keys are handed off to other people in the future? Uh, where does it say that it goes anywhere beyond Peter or that that has to go into Rome, that it, it'll be located in a city and not in people? Where it could be Peter can hand it to someone, that guy can move to Tahiti and hand it off to someone else who can move to Greenland. Like there's, there's just nothing in the text to support the Catholic claims. They go way, 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 way beyond this stuff. Another passage is in the end of John where Jesus tells John, feed my sheep, tend my lamb, tells uh, Peter, excuse me, feed my sheep, tend my lambs, tend my sheep. And he uses those three phrases and they say, this is the pap, this is the papacy. I always say papacy. This is the papacy here in the, in the scripture. There's just, there's, this is the worst exegesis like I've ever seen. Uh, it's it's painfully painfully bad these things do not justify an I, the idea that there is a central authority in the pope and that he has kind of all these claims going on and peter didn't seem to function like a pope in the book of acts either there's a f- few things for you when the verses they're using to support the papacy are being taken way out of context to me this is a huge encouragement for the rest of us to say forget about it <laughs> don't worry about it Verse 13, uh, verse 13, question number 13. How do I explain to a 17-year-old that we have free uh, we have free will when God knows the outcome? Um, I think I think the easiest, the dilemma here is this. If God knows what I'm going to do, did I really have a choice to do it? Well, yes, absolutely. Um, and I think an example would be this. Like, let's say that your, your 17-year-old went somewhere and... You said, I'll be back in an hour to pick you up. 
and she says, I know my mom's coming in an hour to pick me up, right? I, I know, or, or my dad, right? I, I know they're coming on in an hour to pick me up. Does that mean that you have no choice in the matter? Like, don't you still make a free will choice to do the thing? You know, you come in an hour. Does, does my foreknowledge about what you're going to do, does that take away your free will? Well, then why would God's foreknowledge take away your free will? It's foreknowledge. It's not foredetermining. It's simply awareness. God knows ahead of time what you're going to do. And we do this all the time. In fact, none of us could drive down the road if we didn't have this kind of foreknowledge because I'm driving down the street and I have to know or at least believe that the person over there is not going to veer in front of me and kill me. Or if I see someone start to come into my lane, I can predict what they're doing, you know, what the future behavior they're going to have is. And I honk or I pull back. Now, God has perfect foreknowledge. He knows all things that are going to happen perfectly, but that doesn't take away my free will. Foreknowledge is, is no threat to free will in any way. I got a couple more questions that we're going to call tonight. Uh, GD says, is it a good analogy to say the Trinity is like a, the body, soul, and spirit we have? Uh, I don't think so. Because Jesus is more than a body, for one thing. Um, also, I think most of us don't know what the difference between spirits and souls are. And so it becomes kind of confusing to have a conversation about comparing God to something I don't understand. So yeah, I don't per I don't particularly like that. It, it makes it sound like Jesus is just physical. He's purely physical. And that would be incorrect. He was pre-existent. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Well, I don't have any analogy for the body compared to Jesus that way. I like analogies this way. I would say give people an analogy and then explain to them the problems with the analogy. Give them another analogy, explain to them the good side and the problems with it. And then you you start to get a picture of the Trinity. But, you know, lots of scripture tells us that there's nothing to compare God to. What will I compare you to, Lord? What will I compare you to? And there's just nothing to compare him to. And here we are obsessed with analogies for the Trinity. It's like, but I must compare him to something. And I think that that is um, perhaps a... Uh, Something you're never going to be able to successfully, fully successfully do. Not that analogies can't help somewhat, but you got to point out the flaws lest people actually end up getting bad theology out of an analogy. Last question for tonight. Al, or A. Al says, is it AAI? I don't know. You got you to gotta tell me. Are you AAI or AL? I don't know. And he says, um, what are we to make of the name Jehovah? It's onomastics, the study of the origin, history, and use of proper names, seems to point to something different that was uttered to Moses. Um, well, that's probably beyond my own knowledge. That's a sad way to end a Q&A. It's probably beyond my own knowledge. Good person to ask there is Dr. Michael Brown. And I am now going to receive mean comments in the, in the, <laughs> in the chat because I said the name Dr. Michael Brown. And may I, may I, I'll clear the air a little bit if I can. I, uh, for some of you guys, you, you're, you're concerned that I had Dr. Michael Brown on my program uh, because I love his work on um, Messianic pro prophecy in particular. I hugely love it. think it's, in, oh, there it is. It's Al. Got it. Hey, Al. I get you. Um, anyway, I, I think his stuff on, on Jewish, answering Jewish objections to Jesus is a fantastic and important contribution and unique contribution to, to Christians that we need to be aware of and we need to make sure that we don't lose track of. So I want people to be aware of it. But I don't endorse the people Dr. Brown endorses or I don't. And, and I mean, what do we mean by endorse? I, I don't have the same opinions of other teachers that he has. Having him on here on my show with in front of you guys doesn't mean that I want you to go and not only watch his program, but believe every single word that comes out of his mouth any more than you should believe every single word that comes out of my mouth. You need to evaluate everything. 
But I, but I also wouldn't want you to leapfrog from Michael Brown over to somebody else like Bill Johnson, who I have a lot of really serious, very serious concerns of. And he has less, less concerns because he has a different difference of opinion on the guy. So I, I think that, uh, yeah, like, do I think you should take endorsements from Dr. Brown on who you want to listen to? No, I don't. I think you should listen to what he says about Jesus and the Old Testament and Messianic Judaism um, and, you know, entering Jewish objections to Jesus. That's all. I hope that helps. I think he's a wonderful man. I love the Lord. And he's done a, w- a lot of really wonderful things for the body of Christ. And I don't agree with him on everything. And Nor does he agree with me. And maybe I'm wrong. Obviously, if I thought I was wrong, I'd change my opinion. I hope that helps a little bit. We all have to juggle these difficult questions of, and maybe I'll do a video on this, of, of like, how much do I partner with people? Um, you know, at what point is, is bringing someone on for a topic, at what point is that an endorsement of that person or of their views on everything or of whoever they endorse? And what do we mean by endorse? All those kinds of tough questions. I think we have to walk through that carefully and thoughtfully and not freak out and cut off the body of Christ, nor be lax on connecting people with heresy. I think these are all questionable and tough things. And I'm trying to navigate that as best I can. Um, anyway, there you go, y'all. Have a wonderful day. Keep your eyes on Jesus. And, and we're going through a time right now where you can actually take this verse. I grabbed this cup on purpose today. Where you can take this verse... And you can actually apply it properly, right? Because it's not about your football game. You know what it is? It's about being able to go through any difficulty because you have the incredible and unquenchable hope of Christ. Because the glory that is set before us far outweighs any suffering of the present. And may I offer one last encouragement because I can't stop talking. In, in, uh, in Philippians, we're told to think on whatsoever things are true. And I think that's a very positive mental health thing. But for some of us, what we're doing is we're watching the news and we're gathering the bad news of the world. And we think we're getting a picture of the world and it's really depressing us. But you're not getting a picture of the world. You're getting a picture of the bad news of the world. And thinking it's the world. That's not healthy. And it's not good for you. And so what happens is as you as you go out and you reach out for all this information, data from around the world, you're just gathering terrible story over here in Texas, terrible story over here in Florida, terrible story over here in Canada, over in, in, in South Africa, over in New Zealand, and you're gathering all the bad news of the world and you're thinking all of it is the whole story. But if you look around you locally, you realize even where you live, there's good and bad. It's a mixed bag. The world is a mixed bag. There's some good going on. There's some bad going on. But your view of the globe is just all bad news. And that is not accurate. It's not true. Thank God it's not true. Um, we need to have hope. We need to have comfort in the goodness of God and in His, in him working all things together for good in a really tough season as we pray for for healing and for vaccines and we pray for restoration of the economy and the opening of homes and releasing of everyone that kind of stuff these are tough tough times and they're not times to have a skewed version of what's going on either by being hunky-dory thinking everything's fine or by thinking it's all bad news and that's all there and that's all that the world really is so i i hope that that's some comfort some wisdom for you look to the scriptures look to the texts that talk about hard times and apply it into your life today So Lord bless you. Thank you so much for being here with me. We will do more video content uh, this week, I think, God willing. And uh, you just click the bell icon so you can be aware of when that stuff's coming. Take care.